This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. You're listening to The Pandemic, one year later on Wharton Business Daily. Here's your host, Dan Loney. New COVID cases in the U.S. right now are averaging anywhere from 35,000 to 50,000 a day over the last few weeks, and that's well down from over the winter, but still there are concerns as we head towards the spring and summer with more people wanting to get outside. Now, vaccinations are obviously on the rise, but we still see parts of the country not able to get enough. To say the least, this has been a challenging year for the healthcare sector. With a look at that part of the story, we welcome back Dr. Zeke Emanuel, Vice Provost of Global Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania, also former Obama White House Health Policy Advisor and a member of President Biden's COVID-19 Advisory Board. Zeke, great to talk to you again. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Let me start by asking you the what you have viewed as the greatest impacts on the healthcare sector over the last year. And certainly we know that the healthcare sector is probably the one that has been challenged as much as any that we have here in this country. Well, we clearly um, early on in the surge just had uh, overwhelm, overwhelm of the system uh, when we were putting a lot of people into the hospital, into beds. We didn't have a good testing regime. Uh, the amount of... Um, of PPE wasn't adequate, the need to cancel elective surgeries, the loss of income greatly by uh, doctors, especially primary care uh, doctors and proceduralists when procedures were canceled. Uh, so it was just a whole slew of uh, that you could sort of package into overwhelm of the system. How much has this been now to a degree a learning experience and Hopefully we don't ever have to go through something like this again, but a learning experience for a potential next time. Well, yeah, and I think that's really important. I think if, if we have the idea, well, it happened, now we don't have to worry about it. It's a once-in-a-century event. It's not coming back for, you know, till uh, 2120. That would be a mistake because it's unlikely to, that that's going to be a problem. And one of the things I can tell you is, you, you know, I, I just – uh, a year ago, I completed a book uh, looking at um, 11 different uh, health systems around the world. Um, and the ones that did really well, like Taiwan, uh, like Western Canada, um, they actually uh, had a plan. <laughs> uh, they anticipated this problem. Taiwan, mostly because of the suspicion of China um, right. and its experience with SARS in uh, the early 2000s, they had a plan. And when you have a plan, you're not improvising. Uh, you've worked out a lot of the uh, kinks and stresses of the uh, problems. Um, we've now worked out things like ICUs, uh, how to handle uh, uh, procedures. We've implemented telemedicine. All of that stuff, if we had really taken this seriously and thought this through and sort of planned for it, would have been in place. But uh, it wasn't because we didn't plan. And I was just talking to someone from France, one of the countries we also looked at. And there he said, you know, they had created the strategic stockpile of masks. They had a billion masks ready to go, as well as other PPE. And two years ago, it was too expensive, and they decided to get rid of it. I mean, that's not planning, <laughs> and yeah. uh, or, or it's the antithesis of planning. Um, it seems to me that uh, I hope we don't lose sight of 
this experience and we do learn from it. We learn how to be more efficient. We also learn how to um, be more resilient in our system so that when we do get big stresses, uh, we're not overwhelmed by it. Well, so many healthcare systems were, you know, had already made uh, a significant investment in digital already. And, and I'm wondering from your perspective, how much that was an assist as we went through this pandemic? I would say yes and no. So let's talk about the big quote unquote success of telemedicine. Overnight, we went to telemedicine and you can see in the data and we're looking at data with uh, um, Blue Cross and Blue Shield, you know, huge spike in utilization of telemedicine, decline in in in-person visits, there's payment for it. And then, you know, just a handful of months later, it's plummeting the usage. We're back down you know, various people give numbers. It'll be a little while before we have very reliable numbers, but call it 20% of interactions now uh, are, are telemedicine. All right, well, that's great. It's up from low single digits, um, but it's nowhere near where it probably could be uh, if we were being honest about it. And the reason is it's all tied up with payment. And, you know, and that's not the only thing. Payment is critical, but the other flip side is, Doctors don't see a big reason to switch because they've optimized their clinical practices for in-person visits. They know how many in-person visits they have. They know the process. Um, to switch to telemedicine combined with in-person requires effort, and they're not going to expend the effort unless it's really worth it to them. And it'll only be worth it to them, I think, not if you pay for telemedicine, but if you actually give them capitation and therefore they have to figure out, all right, how do I optimize on capitation? What can be done more efficiently? Tele, what can be done more efficiently uh, in person where the in-person visit is really used to minimize downstream costs? Um, So I think that's one element. The other element is we do have a lot of electronic health records, but frankly, they're not very good for these kind of emergencies because interoperability still is terrible. Um, and uh, we, they're still very delayed in getting information to, uh, in, in a consolidated way. Uh, so someone can't be observing thousands of electronic health records and look for spikes on utilization the way they were able to do in Taiwan, where the Ministry of Health uh, actually can see uh, uh, the electronic health, uh, the, the use of services um, and see where there are spikes of people with flu-like symptoms who are flu-negative, and they can take that data of people and cross it with travel, uh, um, international travel, and see who's been to China or, say, Italy, um, and uh, go, you know, uh, uh, trace those people, get them tested, and quarantine the ones who turn out to be positive. That was much more efficiently done in a place like Taiwan, and we don't have that capacity. So, yes, we've done had a big digital investment, but uh, it's not maximized. And, and you know, uh, it, I, I think no one's happy with the current digital uh, uh, platforms. So now a lot of the conversation at this point is is around uh, the vaccines. And I want to ask you about that from two perspectives. One, the speed at which a lot of these pharma companies were able to produce these vaccines and bring them forth, but two, also the rollout. Give us your thoughts on both of those. Yeah, the speed is amazing. And uh, I think we don't appreciate, you know, because we're in crisis, we really need those vaccines. We don't necessarily 
step back and appreciate how amazing the speed of the scientific research, the development, the working closely with the NIH and FDA to get the trial, the right trials done. You can see that there, you know, AstraZeneca has made a number of bumbles, and it's it just didn't have as good a a process and rollout. Um, I would also say, you know, it does point if you. Uh, look under the hood, it does point to the fact that, you know, a lot of this uh, does depend upon an ecosystem where big pharma, ironically, a lot of the research wasn't big pharma. Uh, you know, on, in the Pfizer case, BioNTech did the research on the vaccine. Moderna's a biotech startup, not a big pharma. The big pharma like uh, Merck, Sanofi stumbled and didn't get, get to a vaccine. Um, uh, so I think, you know, it, uh, the ecosystem having lots of players uh, at the cutting edge, uh, going back between biotech, uh, big pharma. And then we have all the manufacturing, which a lot of it is outsourced, not being done again by the company. Pfizer's is being done by Pfizer, but a lot of the J&J is being done by, uh, is is being outsourced, whether to Merck or to uh, Emergent Catalyst and the other companies that are doing production. Um, So, you know, there are lots of players in this, not just uh, a few big pharma companies. And again, right. uh, it, it did require the government to optimize production. And I think the vaccine rollout, it, you know, it, uh, the Trump administration didn't do a great job of planning for the actual rollout. It trusted it to states and states were strapped and didn't have the infrastructure and hadn't had the investment in public health. You can't turn these things on and off. I think we're doing much better. And you know this because many states are opening up now even a month, more than a month before the president has asked for it, to anyone yeah. over 16 to get a vaccine. That tells you something very important, that supply is exceeding demand in those states. Uh, they have to open it up because there are empty slots. And I, I've just experienced here in Maryland, um, uh, you can now, you know, get an appointment. Uh, yeah. Not every day, but, you know, Sunday, uh, they're opened up to anyone over 16 to uh, give a vaccine because, you know, uh, they, they don't have enough demand for every vaccine. So are we going to, are, are, are we going to get to the point, are we going to get to the point in the very near future where we're going to see that across the country? Because it still is a little spotty when you think about, in you know, here in Pennsylvania, I'm 54. I'm still not able to to get a vaccine. I have friends in Texas who I went to college with, you know, they can get it. So, you know, that that level of where we are, I think, is still uh, is still being worked on. I agree with you. I do think that by uh, late April, early May, we will have a situation where supply is going to consistently on a daily basis exceed demand. Um, and, you, you know, anyone who wants it will be able to get it. Hopefully they will have figured out a lot of the kinks. It's still not easy. Uh, to sign up uh, online, you go to multiple sites. They send you back and forth. You know, I, <laughs> you get a, uh, an appointment. You're not 100 percent sure the appointment is crystallized. You know, is really yeah. going to happen? I mean, it, it, it's not, it's not uh, uh, seamless, easy, and you can see that sometimes the low tech works better. You know, West Virginia. You got to say that one of the reasons they succeeded is eh, a lot of telephone call and call centers, not a lot of online appointments, you can talk to a person, you have some kind of reassurance as a person that once you've made it an appointment with that person, it's really going to happen and they can direct you to the nearest place. So I I do think, you know, this is still a work in progress. I think we're probably going to 
you know, with more J&J available, more one shots uh, where you can put it on mobile fans and you don't need special refrigeration. I think that's going to greatly facilitate uh, getting uh, communities that are harder to access uh, vaccines. And that's going to be very important for the equity concern. Zeke, as always, great to talk with you. Look forward to seeing you back on campus at some point later this year. Yeah. Take care. A pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Dr. Ezekiel Manuel, Vice Provost of Global Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.